title of this sermon, as you see in the bulletin, is Divine Impassibility. And I will explain what that means in just a second. It might equally be titled Divine Immutability or Aseity. And again, I'll explain. Now, like last week, let me give you an outline before we dive into the text. Here it is. We begin this afternoon as we did last week. Our first point is the creator-creature distinction. And so a bit of review. Secondly, the creator condescends. He condescends. Thirdly, the immutability of God. The doctrine of divine impassibility. And finally, finally, the uncaused love of God. Firstly, the creator-creature distinction. Secondly, God's condescension. Thirdly, His immutability, divine impassibility. And then finally, the uncaused love of God. Well, turn with me to two passages. First, to Genesis 6, and then to Exodus 3. Genesis 6, and then keep your finger in Exodus 3. We'll turn there shortly. And for those of you who are new, you'll understand what we're doing in just a second. In Genesis 6, I'll read from verses 5 to 8. Hear God's word. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Turn with me now to Exodus chapter 3. I'll be reading, beginning in verse 1, down to verse 14. Exodus 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. 
So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come now, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of our fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus shall you say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Amen. Let's come to God in prayer. Eternal God, as we focus our minds and consider your word this afternoon, we know that we are entering into those dimensions of your character that are unfathomable to our finite minds. Holy Spirit of God, we need you to condescend today as we listen, as we study, and as we think. Uh, Take us, we pray, beyond Lord, beyond the abstract and philosophical, and set our feet on solid ground. Put us in that place where where our minds are struck with awe and our hearts are ravished by your immensity and greatness and your infinitude. Glory to the unchanging, immutable Almighty who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. To Christ our Lord and Savior, begotten, not created, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, beloved, in the process of preaching through, as you know, the book of Genesis this past year, we got to chapter 6, where God is said to have been grieved. We read it. Grieved in his heart that he had made man on the earth. Genesis 6, 6 says the Lord regretted that he made man. It, it grieved his heart. And when we were there in Genesis 6, I thought to myself, well, I should pull over and deal with this. But as I proceeded to write out my thoughts, I decided that it would be better to devote an entire sermon to this topic. If, if, if we had time at the end of the series in December, and so here we are. Well, after I preached that sermon in Genesis 6, I was approached by a brother, in fact, a few brothers, and they asked, they said, Pastor Eric, how should I understand this passage about God's regret? And and they asked, why didn't you explain that? You usually explain when you're up there. And so I promised that I would return after the Genesis series was over and take up this topic, this issue. In other words, God's grief. His regret. So, promise made, and today, promise kept. 
And in in case you're already lost, let me spell this out for you right now. Here at PBC, at this church, we believe in a sovereign and an almighty and independent, eternal, uncontingent, infinite and absolute creator and Lord. He is, as we say, transcendent God. Now, If he is that, and he is, then how is it that he regrets? How could he be grieved? Grieved as if he made a mistake, or better yet, as the King James puts it, it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth. And so the question is simple. How could this be? Now, today, much like last week, we're going to look at multiple passages. We're going to look at multiple passages and, and we're going to, and I'm going to try and paint a mosaic of sorts. And I hope and pray that I will be clear enough so that, so that as we come to the end, we'll be able to put it all together and see the whole. Now, I'm going to try and avoid big theological words as much as possible, but some I will not be able to avoid altogether, and so bear with me. Now then, finally by way of introduction, I would like to invoke the ghost of R.C. Sproul. And I want to do that to encourage and help you because this topic, the topic that we're approaching now, the ontology or the aseity of God, the absolute existence of God, the being of God. This topic was his favorite. It was his favorite topic. And as many of you know, R.C. spent his life teaching on the person and on the nature of God. He, he taught on a ton of other topics, as you know, but this was his favorite. Before he passed away in 2017, Stephen Nichols asked him, if you were to write one more book, just one more book, what would you write on? And without hesitation, he said that he would write a book on the aseity of God. And I, and I said that I would avoid big theological terms, but here we go. Aseity refers to the self-existence of God. It's a Latin term, a, which means uh, from, and say, ase, from oneself, self-existing. R.C. said this, quote, now that is one of my favorite words. I get chili bumps. God is self-existent. He is eternally self-existent. And he is pure being. End quote. Okay, we're going to begin then. We're going to begin with something that we can all grasp and hold on to. As we move and, and as we, we tumble down the rabbit hole. Mind you, this, this is going to get prog- progressively more and more complex and nuanced as we go. Firstly then, firstly, the creator-creature distinction. Again, this is something that we could all hold on to, something that I am sure is already well-founded in your thoughts of God. The creator, beloved, is not creature. And as such, nothing in the creation is on the level with God. There is none like you, O God, Jeremiah 10.6, you are great, O Lord. There is none like you, nor is there any God beside you. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 22. 
Almighty God is wholly other, unlike anything in his creation. He is not a God, one among many. He is not in the category of divinity. No, no, no. He is Godness itself. He is deity itself. He transcends anything and everything that is in his creation. He is transcendent. We are not. We are imminent. He is, he is beyond and, and outside of the bounds of creation. We, as creatures, we live in and are part of the creation. We are subject to space and to time. God is not. Listen to this verse in 1 Kings chapter 8. This is when Solomon is dedicating Israel's temple. And in Solomon's prayer of dedication, when the temple was finished, he prayed this, 1 Kings 8.27, Will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, he says, heaven and the heaven of heavens, not even the highest heaven can contain him. Beloved, this means that God is not knowable unless he makes himself known. And he has, he has through natural revelation and through special revelation. Natural revelation, the creation testifies of the greatness of the person and work of God. And through his special revelation, he has made himself known in his word. But we need to know that even heaven itself, even heaven itself, as Solomon prayed, the highest heaven cannot contain him. Friends, if he could be contained, housed as it were, then he would not be infinite. Solomon understood this. Paul understood this when he said, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Now, track with me, beloved. Whenever God makes himself known, whenever he makes himself known in creation or through revelation, whenever he makes himself known, he is condescending. Whenever he reveals himself, this is a a condescension of sorts. It is God coming down to appeal to the senses of finite creatures so that we might know something, just something of His immensity and greatness. So let's apply Solomon's words. Okay? Track with me. Let's apply Solomon's words to perhaps the most epic revelation of God in all of Scripture. To the book of Isaiah and to chapter 6. You remember this passage. The throne room of God. The seraphs are in endless flight, covering their face and their feet, and then flying with that last set of wings, crying out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. The threshold of the temple shakes. The train of His robe And it is filled with smoke. What a vision. What a revelation. Now, 
Let's apply Solomon's words. Not even the highest heaven can contain thee. Listen, beloved. Even this throne room experience is an example of transcendent, infinite God condescending, coming down to Isaiah's sensibilities, to his understanding, so that Isaiah might get a sense, just a sense of the majesty and infinitude of God Almighty. God Himself, even in Isaiah 6, was lowering Himself, condescending, as it were, incarnating to give a finite being a sense, just a sense of His infinitude. Just a taste. Just a taste. Therefore, therefore, all communication from God to the creature is a condescension of God in order to give the creature a sense of who He is. And so we come to the second point. Creator condescension. It is often said by theologians that God cannot be known exhaustively. Else He would be finite. And that's absolutely right. He cannot be known exhaustively. But... He can be known truly, even as He has made Himself known. Now then, we return to the matter at hand. When we read that God was grieved, that He regrets, or that it repented the Lord, we must keep this Creator-Creature distinction in mind. We We must not think univocally about God. In other words, God's regret, if you will, is not one and the same as our regret. Why? Because He is a being altogether different. Creator-creature distinction. And so the language that is used to describe God in Scripture or otherwise must be and can only be analogical and not univocal. Now, pastor, what do you mean by that? I thought you said you were going to avoid big terms. Well, some I can't avoid, so let me explain. Univocal means one-to-one, univocal. We cannot use, and we do not use univocal language to describe God. So God's grief is not like our grief. There is an analogy here. And so we use analogical language where we can understand something of God, but, 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 this is not univocism. As creatures, we can only use analogical language and not univocal language to describe God. We are not one in the same as He is. We must maintain the creator-creature distinction. Otherwise, we make the creator into creature, and as you know, that is blasphemy. Okay, let me take you to one of the most important passages, if not the most important passage on this issue, to show you that what I'm saying is thoroughly biblical. So turn with me to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15. 
And in this context, if you know the book of Samuel, Saul, Israel's first king, Saul is showing his true colors. He was not. He was not a man after God's own heart. But he was self-seeking. He was self-centered. And before the kingdom is stripped from Saul, God speaking to Samuel and, and through Samuel, he says this, First uh, Samuel chapter 15, look at, look at verse 10. Now, the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, and here's God, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned his back from me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel and he cried out to the Lord all night. Now this word regret, that is the word that is used in Genesis 6 where we read the Lord was grieved or, or he regretted that he had made man on the earth. Now <clears throat> watch this, okay? Saul, Saul is in anguish and, and then he begins to plead with Samuel. He, he begins to plead and he, and he starts begging at his feet. And look at verse 27. Samuel now is departing from Saul. The kingdom has been stripped from him. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe and and tore it. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also, watch this, the strength of Israel will not lie nor regret or relent, for he is not a man that he should regret. The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should regret. But God himself said, just verses before, I regret that I have made Saul king, or Genesis 6. I regret that I made man on the earth. What is the author of 1 Samuel, what is he trying to teach us? Samuel is trying to teach us something about God right here. He is using analogical language and he is telling us so. Yes, yes, God regrets, but you should know that this regret is not like our regret. It is not, and he is not a man that he should regret. So what is, what is God doing right here? What is he saying right here? What is he communicating to us as he condescends to teach us about himself? Which, if you will, this is the right way to frame the question. If we have good theology, we should frame the questions this way. What is God teaching us instead, instead of saying, well, how can this be? How can, how can God regret? Friends, we need to slow our roll when we do theology. Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. That's been true of me over the years as I have studied and studied theology, always rushing in like a fool. So what is God teaching us here in Genesis 6 and in 1 Samuel 15? Simply put, here it is. He hates sin. He is displeased with disobedience. Sin is an abomination to holy God. Not, not, not that man's sin or Saul's rebellion had somehow caught God off guard or that God at these moments 
was somehow changing his mind as if he was realizing something that he was unaware of or as though he was caught off guard and thus as a result was grieved and experienced regret as if he were a man or a creature subject to time, events, circumstances, emotional states, or the creature's sin. God is not saying here to himself, oh, he's not saying, oh man, my bad. <laughs> I, should have, I should have never made Saul king. No, friends, if that were the case, then he would not be God. But he would, he would be subject to the creation. He would be dependent on the creation and thus a creature himself. And that, beloved, as I mentioned, is blasphemous since it is he who gives to all men life, breath, and all things, Acts 17, 25. Uh, Do you remember the big words that we learned a few months ago? We learned the word anthropomorphism. And we also learned the word anthropopathism. Remember, an anthropomorphism is a fancy word that's used to describe attributes of physical human characteristics that we place on God. For example, the arm of the Lord, or the eyes of God, or the finger of God. And you know, we know that God does not have a body. His, his arms, his arm refers to his power, his, his eye to his omniscience. The, the finger of God refers to his handiwork. That's an anthropomorphism. Now, an anthropopathism is another fancy word used for the attribution of human emotions and passions to God. But just as God does not have a body, so also is God passionless. He is impassable. As theologians say, he is immutable and unchanging. So we come to our third point. Divine impassibility or God's immutability. Now this is where things get a little bit more technical and a little bit more nuanced where I hope to challenge you a bit in your thinking as we think together. And and as we get there, I want to say this in case you check out and perhaps you've already checked out. Let me say this, that God's regret, that that his heart, that it can be grieved, this beloved is timeless, infinite, transcendent, immutable God, condescending to our creatureliness in order to interact in time to reveal himself to us. Let me say that again. That God regrets that his heart is grieved, this, friends, is timeless, infinite, transcendent, immutable God, condescending, lowering himself to our creatureliness in order to interact in time and to reveal himself to us. Okay, we come then to the impassibility of God. The doctrine of impassibility. God without passions. And impassible is a Latin term, im, which means not, and Passibles, which means feelings or emotions or the ability to suffer. Without passions or emotions, God is impassable. Now, maybe some of you are upset with me. 
you're, you're upset because I said that God is passionless. And that might sound ridiculous to you because this is not how God is presented in Scripture. In fact, many contemporary Christians cringe at this idea. And sadly, a lot of modern theology is abandoning these classical, orthodox, reformed formulations of God, these biblical doctrines, and many are trying to repackage God for a contemporary audience. And what they end up doing is ultimately packaging something that's entirely different than what we have and what's been given to us in Scripture or from historic theology. And so beware, beloved, because some today are changing the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, sadly today, God, in the minds of many Christians, God is more like a moody teenager. He's subject to the same emotionalism that characterizes this generation, our generation. As if he's some kind of self-conscious, frustrated, emo deity. Instead of the divine transcendent. Instead of the immutable, impassable, I am of Holy Scripture, the passionless God. And by passionless, I do not mean that He doesn't care. Absolutely not. But He, Almighty God, is not, He is not subject to our conceptions of reality since He Himself defines reality and all that is that has ever been or will ever be. He said to Moses, I am that I am. In other words, as creatures subject to space and time, our experiences, our understanding, our conceptions of reality in no way, shape, or form circumscribe God such that He subjects Himself to the creaturely state of existence as though He Himself is subject to time or space or experiences or growth or emotions or passion. Now, that said, this does not mean that God's love is not real. That His anger is not real. Or that His mercy and compassion and, and righteousness and power are not real. No, in fact, the exact opposite is true. God is love. He is righteousness. He is absolute power. His absolute isness, the fact that everything that is can only have its being from Him, this, my friends, is the only reason that anything can be or is. Am I making sense? I'm not sure. A little bit, somebody said. Listen to Anselm of Canterbury. He was a 12th century monk. He wrote in his book, Proslogion, he wrote this, that God is that which is greater than can be conceived. He is greater than that which can be conceived. His greatness is, in a very real sense, unfathomable, incomprehensible. And whatever it is that we might conceive of as great, he is greater yet still. Now that might sound strange to you, all of this. But friends, let me say it this way. God is not like us. 
He is God. The theologian James Dozell says this, It would be strange were He not strange. He is not like us. He is God. And we are not. Dozell goes on, he says this, In fact, it would be strange if He was just a bigger version of something in the creation. Now, you may have to listen to this sermon twice, but I'm okay with that. Okay, let's go. Let's unpack how it is and why it is that God is passionless and impassable. Why He is immutable. Beloved, God is immutable. Said another way, the great I am is not becoming. Rather, He is absolute. He is infinite. He is infinite actuality. He is being itself. He is not becoming. He is not in process. He is not developing. Almighty God is not on His way to a reality or a state of existence that He is not already. Said plainly, He is unchanging. He is immutable. He is the great I am. God is not moved by anything that happens in creation. Now, I do not mean that He doesn't care, but He is not moved or changed in His being, His nature, in His sovereign decree. And many contemporary Christians, as I mentioned, don't like that. They prefer a God who is in process, in, in relationship, who is, who is developing, a God who is learning. Some will argue thus, well, how could He be genuinely loving or genuinely angry or jealous? But friends, the question presupposes that genuineness is and has to be and can only be measured by finite creaturely experience and thus forcing God to be just like His creatures, which abolishes the creator-creature distinction and is therefore a no-no when we do theology. Friends, God is not moved by anything outside of Himself. Now let me ask a question. A question that I think most most Christians would, would answer in the same. Here it is. Can something that is not God, follow me now, can something that is not God make God to be what He is? Or who He is? Can something that is not God make God to be what He is or who He is? And I think most Christians with a little thought would would conclude that something that is not God does not and cannot, and it cannot make God to be God. I think that's pretty simple and basic. Beloved, God absolutely is. I am, says the Lord. He is not becoming. He absolutely is immutable, unchanging, the great I am. And nothing outside of Him that He creates can make Him be what He already absolutely is. Now, mutable, changeable beings that are becoming, like all of us, creatures, dependent, contingent, Subject to space and time, passions and emotions. This is what we are. 
uh, emotional and passionate creatures. We depend on things and circumstances, other people and other events to raise our emotions and our passions to new and different states of being and affection. Friends, this is what it means to be finite. Finitude, our finiteness requires that we can be changed. Changed into different states of being, emotional states, states of passion. And thus only a finite being can have states of emotion, different states of being. But God cannot have states of being produced in him or caused by something operating outside of him or upon him. This would only make him finite and this would only make him a creature. And so listen, friends, this is absolutely critical for us to understand. Because, why? Because if God loves us and you, if he loves you passionately, emotionally if he loves us or for that fact hates sin passionately or emotionally then that love that anger towards sin would be finite it would be changeable it would be mutable and if it were that then it would be nothing more than creaturely love and not divine love but nothing more than human love and then God's love would be no different than the love of a finite creature. But that, my friends, is not how God loves you. His love for us is not just a bigger version of something that we already know in the creation. It is not merely human love at its maximum a bigger version of creature love. No, no. His love is, as the hymn teaches us, so amazing, so divine. Demands my soul, my life, my all. It is divine. It is a divine love, immutable, unchanging, infinite, transcendent divine love. It is so divine. If, if it were not, then He would love you finitely. He would love you finitely. He would hate sin finitely. Only, friends, only impassable, passionless love, only unchanging love, only immutable love can be infinite. Infinite love requires passionlessness. Infinite love requires impassibility. Love that changes, love that can be changed into different states of actuality is finite love. And only a finite being can have and experience those emotional states and those passions. While God, God cannot have states of being produced in him that are caused by something operating outside of him or upon him. God is not subject ultimately. He is not subject to creatures operating outside of him or upon him. Beloved, we do not and cannot. Hear me now. Please check back in if you've checked out. We do not and cannot 
produce God's love. We do not and cannot cause His love or His indignation against sin. No. Love is His very nature. It is His very nature to be an abounding fountain, an overflowing fountain of love, quite apart from us or anything else in His creation. This is who God is. This is His very nature. God is not passionate about you. He's not emotional about you or anything else in the creation. He is not moved by you. If He were, then He would be like you. He would be like us. Creature, subject to space and time, circumstance, passions, emotions, subject to the very creation that He created, which is an absolute absurdity on its face, for then He would not be God. Now then, God will, He will manifest. He will manifest His love. He will manifest His indignation. He will manifest His nature in space and in time. And He will, as He has done through various peoples and to various peoples at different times relative to their dispositions. But please understand, beloved, God's anger towards sin or His grief, if you will, over sin these do not rise and fall on the basis of what we do. His demonstration, the manifestation of His anger will rise or fall. But this does not change God Himself. God is not changed in any way, shape, or form. Almighty God displays His love toward us, to us. But this display does not and cannot change something in God. This display, this manifestation toward us, toward you, does not make Him more or less loving. And let me say this, in order to prepare us for next week. Friends, the ultimate expression of God's love toward us was and is displayed in the incarnate Christ. This is the ultimate condescension of God. And the ultimate demonstration of His love. This is, He is the closest we get to understanding the incomprehensible God. But more on the condescension. More on this incarnation next week for Christmas. Friends, we do not and cannot produce love in God. No, it, it is in His very nature to be an abounding fountain of love. Beloved, God's love and His justice, they are real and intense, but they are not caused. They are not emotions or passions. Because friends, emotions and passions, these require causes. But God's love toward us cannot be caused, because if it were caused, then it would be caused by something outside of Himself. And therefore, he would be contingent. He would be dependent. Yea, He would not be God. This is, finally then, the uncaused love of God. You see, He is the first cause. As Thomas Aquinas said, He is the uncaused cause 
self-existent, ase, aseity, independent, uncontingent, ultimate and absolute actuality. If God's love were caused, then beloved, our salvation would be dependent. It would be dependent on something outside of God that was operating on God. And thus salvation would no longer be in God and God alone. It would be dependent or contingent on someone or something else. But it is not. Absolutely not. Our salvation is, has always been, and will ever be in God alone. Said another way, in Christ alone. In the mystery of God's uncaused love. Listen to this. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved, in Christ. Now, I was talking to a recent convert just a few weeks ago. And as we were reviewing and discussing the Gospel, he said to me, he said this. He said, Pastor, but I, I, I still don't know why, though. Why me, he asked. Why would he choose me? He gets it. You, you see, it is when we understand God's divine grace that salvation is not of works, but entirely of God and of His sovereign mercy, then all of us are left asking, why me? Listen, beloved. If I knew why God chose you or anyone else for salvation, if there were a reason, a cause, friends, our salvation would be dependent or contingent, and thus no longer in God, but in something else. And thus, we wouldn't be asking, why me? It would no longer be of God's grace, the mystery of His divine grace. Let me say this. The most fundamental thing in Christianity, the gospel, is also one of the greatest mysteries in Christianity. Why? Why would he leave his heavenly home? His father's side. Why would he leave the world of glory and come to this fallen world? Why would he humble himself, take to himself the weakness of our humanity? Why would the Creator condescend to his creatures? Why would he live to fulfill what we failed to do? Why would He keep God's law? Why would He offer His life? Why, as a sacrifice, why would He willingly go to the cross to pay for our sins? Why would He bear the cross? Why would He take upon Himself the iniquities of us all? Why would, would He be pierced for our iniquities and punished for our... Why would He go to the grave? Why would He do... Why, why would He subject Himself to death? Why would He rise from the dead? Why would He conquer death? Why would He rise and ascend into heaven? Why would He return to God on our behalf as our high priest to intercede for us in heaven? Why? 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 Let me tell you, the answer is very plain. It's because He loves you. 
But pastor, why does he love me? Doesn't he know what I've done? Doesn't he know how messed up I am? Doesn't he know that I once hated him? Listen, friends, he knows. Oh, he knows all too well. Then why? Why does he love me? I don't know. I don't know. It is a divine mystery. It is beyond our reach. This disappears into the mystery of his absolute existence. Into the mystery of his being. I don't know why he loves you. But I know for a fact that if you have trusted in Christ, if you have put your faith in Him, I know for a fact that His eternal, unchanging, immutable, transcendent love has been lavished upon you in the Beloved, in Christ. And that will never change. His love will never pass away, be altered, or abolished. For God is love. That will never change, for He will never change. He is immutable. Let's pray together. Eternal God, immutable, unchanging, impassable, infinite, and transcendent. Why would you love us so? Why would you send your only begotten for sinners like us? The righteous for the unrighteous. Lord, we confess we don't understand. We lay our hands on our mouth and we lay low in the dust from which we came. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that that you would visit him. Yet in the mystery of your redemptive love, you set your love upon your elect, your beloved, loved in Christ before all worlds. Lord, we feel unworthy because we are unworthy. We recognize that we're dust We confess that we are worse than dust. We are sinful, rebellious dust. Finite creatures trying to live like gods in a fallen world. Forgive us, Lord, for thinking sinfully and living sinfully. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For our trust trust is not in ourselves. We know who and what we are. And so our trust is in Christ, our Lord and Savior. In Him, we have the forgiveness, the redemption, and the sanctification that we seek. We pray then, increase our faith, increase our trust in Him, in You, our good and heavenly Father. And now, all glory to the eternal, unchanging, almighty God, Lord of heaven and earth, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.